In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 through 17. Samuel told the Israelites to stop worshiping idols and follow only God, and he promised that God would rescue them from the Philistines. Well, the Israelites agreed, and they met at Mizpah to fast and admit their sins. The Philistines came to attack them there, and God thundered against their enemy and gave Israel the victory. Good morning and blessed Eastertide. Today is Thursday, May 5th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'd, I'd like to thank our sponsor, though, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Their generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation is a ministry which provides Lutheran resources in various languages. Visit them online to learn more about their translating and publishing work and how to get involved at lhfmissions.org. Well, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us divide and discern for Samuel 7. It's the Reverend James Uglum, pastor of Chapel of the Cross Lutheran Church in St. Peter's, Missouri. Welcome, brother, to Thy Strong Word. Oh, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you today. Now, I am pronouncing your last name right. Is that, is that correct? Uh, technically, no. It's actually Uglum. So oh. it's a... Good Norwegian name. They dropped the umlauts above the U at some point in our family's history, just to make things really confusing. Well, as someone with a very unusual name that people often get wrong, I empathize <laughs> with you, and I probably should have checked before the show, but I'm glad you corrected no me. Uh, brother, I know that you were recently, just a couple of months ago, a guest on Sharper Iron. Yep. You've also been on KFO several times doing the sermonette, but so far as I know, this is your first time on Thy Strong Word. Uh, that why don't you share a little bit about yourself and your congregation and how God's working through you? Bob? Yeah. Uh, so my uh, congregation, Chapel of the Cross, we have been around now, I think, for a little over 30 years. Uh, we were a, a mission plant actually from Chapel of the Cross, North County. So anybody familiar with the St. Louis area, we've got uh, two Chapel of the Crosses. It makes things really confusing because we're only about 15 miles away from each other. Um, but I've been here the entirety of my ministry as a pastor. Uh, when I graduated from the seminary, uh, it's going on, I think, 11 years now, 11 or 12. You lose track after a while. Um, but my wife and I uh, got married in 2006, moved out here to St. Louis, and we have never left. We've got three great kids, and uh, congregation you know, has really bounced back post-COVID, and it's just fun doing ministry with these people and diving into God's Word on Sundays and uh, in Bible studies and sermons. So that's that's me in a nutshell. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, you know, when I heard the name Chapel of the Cross, I yeah, I'm glad you brought up there might be some confusion with people familiar with St. Louis, because I thought, yeah, I know that church, but I don't think it's exactly the same one, but you guys are connected. Yeah, Absolutely. there are. So Chapel of the Cross North County is our mother congregation, you could say, and we're the daughter congregation now going on uh, 30 some odd years uh, out here in St. Peter's, oh, wow, just west. Great. How great. That is absolutely awesome. Well, today our text is going to be 1 Samuel. We're going to get right into it. It's going to be chapter 7, mm -hmm. uh, but before we start reading anything, I think it would be a good idea for us to begin our time together in prayer. And as our guest, I'd like to invite you to lead us in Definitely. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for another beautiful day in your service uh, here Lord, we pray that as we study your scriptures this morning, that you would open uh, these words to us through the power of your Holy Spirit working inside us, that we would hear in these scriptures, uh, these very ancient words, uh, the message that you would speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are beginning our text today officially with verse 3. That's because our guest from yesterday went all the way through verse 2, just because that's how the theme kind of broke itself up naturally. Yep. You know, that's the funny thing about these uh, chapters and verses. They don't always follow perfectly the theme. <laughs> uh, but in chapter 6, the ark had been returned to Israel, 
and uh, the the Philistines were, you know, basically trying to get get rid of it, and they were taken away from them. Tell us a little bit more detail about what we talked about yesterday, uh, as it might build up to what we're going to discuss today. Yeah, so when we get into our verses for today, 3 through 17, so the end, uh, really almost the entirety of chapter 7, uh, this serves as the bookend for what happens in the previous three chapters. So you really starting at chapter 4, 5, and 6, uh, what you see is the sequence of events where uh, the Philistines are the antagonists uh, here, of course. Uh, they are uh, going to war against Israel, and Israel suffers a defeat. And then they have the great idea, you know, perhaps the reason we were defeated uh, had nothing to do with, you know, whatever was probably the real reason, which was uh, their lack of trust in God. But they thought to themselves, right. let's bring up the ark, uh, almost using that as a good luck charm. And it went about as well as you could expect. Uh, and so for those familiar with that story, the ark was captured. Um, the Philistines paraded it into their, uh, their cities as, uh, you know, a captured god placed it in the temple of Dagon, their god, and then things began to go badly for them. So uh, Dagon, uh, of course, fell over, uh, broke apart the, you know, the great statue that they had of him there. And then there were diseases. Finally, the Philistines ascertained uh, rightly that God's hand, the God of the Israelites, his hand was against them, and they sent it away in a very dramatic fashion. And... Um, it's so in the passage right before this, uh, it's come back into Israel. Uh, the people of Beth Shemesh, uh, they receive the ark, but they don't receive it in the right manner. And so uh, it winds up 70 men are struck down and the people mourn, um, but they have the wrong reaction, the people of Beth Shemesh, where um, they panic a, a little bit. And instead of repenting and turning to God, they decide they're going to send the ark off to another place. And so the men of Kiriath-Jerim actually receive the ark and they receive it uh, rightly. Uh, they treat it with the proper respect. Uh, it's placed in a household. They commission someone, uh, consecrate Eliza uh, to serve before the ark there. And uh, then we get this uh, right away in verse two, uh, this note saying that a long time passed, some 20 years uh, that the ark was housed uh, in Kiriath Jerem, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So this is, uh, you know, the end of that section where, um, you know, Israel's rebellion has uh, gone really badly for them. But now uh, we see them lamenting just before verse three picks up from chapter seven. So when we read, we're going to take it nice and slow. We, we have uh, plenty of time to get through the 17 verses of this chapter. Um, actually, only uh, 15 technically, since we're starting a few in. Uh, but I'm just going to read, I am going to start at the beginning, but read through verse 4. Uh, so this, folks, at home will be from the English Standard Version. Here we go. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of Yahweh and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of Yahweh. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jarim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to Yahweh with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to Yahweh, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines." So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served Yahweh only. So Samuel is reintroduced here uh, in the narrative of 1 Samuel, and he's introduced here by calling them, I suppose, like if you're really lamenting, if you're really <laughs> uh, uh, sad that you have been worshiping in wrong ways, you really want to worship the Lord right, you got to quit worshiping all these false gods. That's something we've seen time and again. Even when we were going through Judges, so many different pagan gods would simply be just put on the shelf alongside Yahweh like, like it was just a collection as opposed to there really being only one true God. Yeah, and this was the, the heart of Israel's sin. And when you look at 
the, this period of history for Israel, a uh, period that is going to, you know, switch now at the end of this chapter, uh, this period of judges, it's um, just a seesaw back and forth between faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And it's, it's really these foreign gods that Israel never successfully really put away. Uh, they did for short periods of time um, that continually trip them up. Um, and it's just a, a sad commentary on where they are. But when you look at, uh, especially, you know, here and now, you get to see kind of the effect of, um, you could say law and gospel here, but where uh, the people are repenting, uh, they're lamenting after the Lord, you know, they, they realize that things have gone wrong. And now Samuel, uh, as the judge of Israel at this time, has his opportunity to say, hey, if, if this is uh, true, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away these false gods. You know, you can't keep going back and forth uh, pretending that you can serve a pantheon when Yahweh is the one true God. Well, absolutely. And we see here that they now have back in their presence the uh, the Ark of Yahweh. And I guess it couldn't go back to Shiloh where it had been because that was destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so we know that it remains here until David brings it back to Jerusalem. And we're going to hear about that in weeks, weeks, <laughs> weeks, weeks from now in 2 Samuel 6. Yep. Uh, but so they're, they're, I guess they're they're pleased to have the Ark of Yahweh amongst them. But one thing I've noticed, as you were also illustrating, is these pantheon of gods that they worshipped, they often took the holy things of God, which of course he gave them the proper understanding and, and regulations and rules by which to use them in worship, but they used them a lot like the, the, I guess, the holy trinkets or idols even, or the thrones of the pagan gods. They used them in ways that weren't consistent with the way God wanted them to use them. We see that time and again that they would use the holy things of God in ways that were unholy. Mm -hmm. And I think that alone, well, that and adding to the fact that they had so many gods on their shelf, really connects to today. Because the you know, when we want to talk about worshiping the Lord and serving him only, it's not just about acknowledging there's only one true God, but also worshiping only him, putting him first over and above whatever gods we think are important, and worshiping him so far as he is commanded in the manner that he has asked us to worship him. There's a lot of latitude in worship, <laughs> but there's also a lot of things that we aren't to do. Correct. So I see this already really resonating home for us. I don't know. About yeah, you. I definitely uh, see that as well. And it's it's one of those questions here, I think, which is helpful when we look at a text like this and look not just at, you know, what was actually going on in the context here, but then how does God speak to us in this text today? You know, it's this is one of those things where it's easy for us to read past when Samuel says in verse 3, um, you know, if you're turning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Um, it's easy for us because we don't use this language in our everyday culture, everyday lives uh, to think that foreign gods is something that we've kind of grown out of as modern day Christians and people of God. Um, but the reality of idols is that nearly anything really can become an idol for us. And I, I really appreciate Luther's explanation to the first commandment. Um, you know, anything that we fear, love and trust more than God becomes a God for us. And it's helpful for us, I think, to to pause and consider if Samuel was speaking these words to us today and we're responding to God's word in repentance, what are those false gods? What names would they go by? Obviously, they're not going to be Baal, Ashtoreth for us anymore. Uh, but where, you know, what are those things that we're tempted to fear, love, and trust more than God? And those are those things that God calls us to identify and then put out of our lives. It's interesting that you bring up what would they be called, and we certainly have our own names for them. Uh, a lot of people will worship, you know, humanity and wisdom. They'll worship love. They'll worship uh, strength and fire, fighting and war. And what I think is amusing is that you're absolutely right. People say, well, you know, if we don't have a golden idol sitting on our shelf in our living room, then we aren't worshiping false gods. Mm -hmm. But think about who the Baals and the Ashtoreths were. You know, so Dagon, who's the god of the Philistines primarily, 
He's the father of Baal, and Baal is like the the war god, thunder god, the the storm god, and he's I guess married to, and I guess in a, in a way to uh, Asherah or Esh, the Eshtoreth, who is the god of love. In mm-hmm. fact, their Greek counterparts and Babylonian counterparts would be Ishtar and Aphrodite, and so she's also a fertility deity, and so. If you, if you look at those things, you see, what are the people, what are the pagans around them actually worshiping when they worship these false gods? And really, it's not any different <laughs> than what we worship today. Sex and power and, um, you know, and, and those sorts of things, the things that we don't understand and also the things that we delight in, things that we could also argue are gifts from God, but then they worship them, they worship the creation rather than the creator. And so it would make sense that Israel would be tempted to, to do those things, to include them in. And here's Samuel, who, you know, being a prophet of God doesn't make you super popular, yep. says, if you want to return to Yahweh with all your heart, then get rid of these foreign gods. Mm-hmm. And I just don't understand, from a practical point of view, how often they have been told that the reason why you have to defeat these nations, the reason why you have to uh, uh, not marry into them is to avoid going after their gods. And I realize tons of time have passed, yeah. but that's exactly what they end up doing. Yeah, and it, it becomes, you know, it's, especially by this point in Israel's history in the Promised Land, those predictions that God makes about, you know, here's what's going to happen if you if you do these things and intermarry, um, those all wind up coming true. And, you know, in a precursor to, to uh, the next chapter that you'll get into when Israel demands a king, same thing happens. God lays out, if you do this, here's what's going to happen. And Israel will find out very quickly uh, as they go their own way that God's warnings uh, do come true in exactly the way that he said they would. Um, Absolutely. Anything else before we dive into a little bit more? Yeah, just really quickly, that this idea that repentance, I think, which stands out so strongly in chapter 7, is both inward and outward, that there's this inward component, a turning of the heart, but that that turning of the heart always has outward manifestation. So when Samuel calls them, um, you know, to return to the Lord with all their heart, he immediately follows that up with, and if you're if you're doing this, then here is what repentance in this moment looks like, and it's it's removing the false gods from among them, which is helpful for us as well. That um, repentance, this uh, turning towards God in our lives as well, should have the same effect. And so, whatever those false gods are that we're tempted to follow, when we repent and turn away from those things, it's it's always going to be followed up with action uh, that the Holy Spirit prompts us with. So that's, yeah. Let's keep on going with verses five through eight. Here we go. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to Yahweh for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before Yahweh and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against Yahweh. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. That's verse 8. I'm going to end there. Just pause for a moment. So Samuel says, Gather, everybody get together (laughs) at this one spot, which is uh, strategically unwise, (laughs) as as we see. And I'm going to pray to Yahweh for you. And so they did. Now, I want to get to according to—I'm sorry, I want to talk a little bit about what happens uh-huh. there. But we do see here at the end, uh, yeah, the, the Philistines use this as an opportunity to pounce. Uh, but back at the top, so they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before Yahweh and fasted. Fasting, I think, is pretty easy to understand. Correct. What is the pouring out the water? That's interesting. Yeah, that is a really interesting thing that uh, arises in this passage. And uh, there's actually a connection here uh, to something that uh, Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations. So uh, Lamentations 2, 9, verse 19, 
he writes, Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. This idea, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. I, um, I think a little bit of what it, he's, uh, you know, what's going on here in this. It's, it's almost like Israel saying, you know, we wish we could shed as many tears for our sins as the drops of water uh, that are being poured out here in this moment. I think there's, there's a little bit of, of this sense. Um, I don't know how, how you've, you know, understood what's going on here, but there's a little bit of that sense going on here, uh, this pouring out of the water. Yeah, I, I mean, I like that uh, explanation. You know, some of the commentaries that I consulted, mm-hmm. one that's a little, I guess, say a little more critical, a little less uh, Lutheran, we'll say, you know, and I don't think it's mm-hmm. wrong, but it says this pouring out could indicate that along with fasting, the people would not drink water until Samuel had finished interceding on their behalf. Mm. I think that's a very pragmatic way to look look at it. But the fact that you brought what you brought up from Scripture, I think tells us that this is communicating more. Perhaps that's exactly part of it, right? We're not going to drink water, we're pouring out the water, although even that would have been symbolic because it's foolish for them to <laughs> pour out their water in the middle of the desert. Yeah. Um, but I absolutely think that it is pointing toward this, maybe either a purification ritual, mm-hmm. like a local one, or maybe just symbolic of their tears, which I love, or just the idea that the, the, the Lord is able to wash away their sins and so as some people who are very critical of the scriptures like to be overly pragmatic, <laughs> maybe we like to be overly sacramental. Correct. I can't help but think of baptism. I can't help but think of baptism. I'm not saying this is baptism, but you can't help really think about how God washes away our sins in the waters of baptism. Yeah, and as I was thinking of this, and we'll get this in the in the you know following uh, section, I believe, where uh, we see a lamb sacrifice, and of course, you know, from this side of the of Jesus' death and resurrection, there are a whole bunch of uh, conclusions we draw with that. But yeah, it's it's easy to see a connection with baptism. I think um, in general, you know, as I read this, I don't know that I would connect it completely with baptism. But what I would say is that Agreed. it does point to how God works among His people. So you know, we 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 use the term sacrament for that, but God. Um, often works in very physical, tangible ways to communicate with his people what he's doing. And I I think this is another one of those uh, places where, um, yeah, it's not a sacrament per se, but we see God working in the sacramental way, um, you know, using this, you know, very obvious uh, and recognizable thing to communicate what he's doing and for the Israelites for themselves to communicate what they're feeling here in this moment. Another thing that stands out to me right here in this same section is that now Samuel judges the people of Israel. Our very last topic was in the book of Judges. So, you know, when I hear judge, I guess I'm, you know, uh, a little bit preconditioned to think about the judges like Samuel and Deborah and Gideon. Um, is Samuel judging in—I mean, I suppose the judges themselves, really, besides maybe Deborah, didn't do a lot of uh, judicial-type judging, but they certainly executed God's justice by being judges over Israel and over the nations around them. Samuel judging the people there, um, is this his prophetic duty? Is this really pointing us back to the, the role of judges? Is he the last judge? How do we, how do we look at this? All right, so Samuel— I would say what I would say is that he stands uh, in this pivotal moment in Israel's history, this transition from judges to the kings. And Samuel is kind of unique among some of the other judges that you hear about through the the book of Judges itself, in which many of them, um, beyond just the the civil position they hold, you know, really serve as military commanders. Uh, Samuel what we see in his ministry really serves more as uh, prophet and priest for the people of Israel. And I think that's what's going on here when uh, it says that he's uh, judging in verse six, that judge, he judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. He's, you know, standing in, in the stead between Israel and God uh, here in this moment, mediating, if you want to use that term, 
this repentance, this turning back to God and Yahweh that the people of Israel are having in this moment. So to the question of, you know, is Samuel a prophet? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is he a judge? Yes. Is he leading Israel? Yes. He's he's kind <laughs> of that, as you said, that transitional figure, and, and, and certainly the last of them because, of, well, we know what happens next. So he's judging the people of Israel at Mizpah, because it gives us this location, it's not just in those days he judged them, it's he's judging them there. I would say that this is where Samuel is exercising his authority as God's representative to call the people to repentance, because that's what's going on. And I suppose if this were written in the New Testament era, perhaps it would say, and Samuel... um, forgave the sins of the people there or pronounced absolution or something very gospely. Right. But I think that I think that's inherent in the judging, right? The the both law and gospel. Yeah, so this judging is it's it's a tough word for us in English because we tend to hear it in only one direction. Uh as a pronouncement of law, uh, uh as a pronouncement of a sentence on a person. But in this case, you can hear it in the more positive sense, you know, he's pronouncing his judgment on Israel, but it's the judgment of the forgiveness of God, uh, the reconciliation or restoration of that relationship between God and his people here in this moment. Well, and they are certainly displaying through both their fasting and through this pouring out of water that they are repentant. They're crying out to the Lord that they have sinned against him. And now the Philistines are going to take advantage of their gathering at this place. But we're going to have to wait to hear about that until after our break. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we return, Pastor Uglam and I will continue talking about 1 Samuel chapter 7. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend James Uglum, pastor of Chapel of the Cross Lutheran Church in St. Peter's, Missouri. Friends, thank you for gathering around God's Word with us this morning. You know I love to hear from you, so you can reach out to me by email at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Facebook. You can ask me anything or just say hello. And if you like Thy Strong Word, why not share it with others who also might benefit from it? The program airs on AM850 in St. Louis, or you can stream it live or on demand at kfuo.org, or on the KFUO app, or on your favorite podcasting platform. There are many ways to hear the show. I appreciate that you've chosen to grow in your faith with me and my guests every weekday, so thank you for being part of the show. Well, Pastor, before the break, we had just gotten to the point where the people are pouring out their hearts before the Lord. They're admitting to their sins. They're asking uh, Samuel to intercede on their behalf. He's judging them, which contains, of course, both uh, their confession and the Lord's absolution. Lots of good stuff is happening. Yep. But picking up with verse 7, it says again, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against them. And it goes on to say that the people of Israel were afraid, and they said to Samuel, Don't quit crying out to Yahweh for us. So that's kind of where we didn't get to yet, but we did hear already. So they're all gathered here at this Mizpah, which I guess in Hebrew means watchtower. So I'm I'm guessing that this must have been a, a little city a settlement or something that's real, real high mm-hmm. uh, in in its positioning. So it's a nice rallying point. But now their gathering around the Lord is going to be used by their enemies. 
prepare us for what comes next. Yeah. So uh, Mizpah, so like with so many of the, the location uh, names that we get in the Old Testament, uh, with the history of God's people in this one place for so long, uh, there, there are a couple other mentions. Uh, so with Mizpah, uh, this was where Jacob separated from Laban uh, way back in Genesis 31. Uh, oh, yeah. It also where in Judges 20, uh, where Israel comes together uh, and they re- repent essentially of the uh, everything that had happened with Levite, the Levite and his concubine and the tribe of Benjamin and, and all of that uh, backstory as well. Um, but what's interesting, so of course, you know, like with so much of the scriptures, we, if you're familiar with this passage, uh, we know how things are going to turn out or we're going to find out how they're going to turn out in a verse or two. Uh, for the people of Israel here in this moment, of course, they don't know. They've repented. Uh, they've confessed their sins. And then, you know, the Philistines are coming at them. Uh, they have a very uh, real, honest reaction, I think, fearing for their lives uh, now in this place. Um, but for us with the, again, the, the benefit of hindsight and standing on the other side of the resurrection, um, what's interesting, you, you see this connection to uh, what John writes in his first letter. And it's, it's something very familiar to all of us because it's, it has become a liturgical piece. In First uh, John chapter 1, uh, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what we see in the passage just before this, uh, the people of Israel, they come together and they confess. They say, we have sinned, uh, we, have, we sinned against the Lord, and then Samuel judges them. And so what you'll see now is the resolution, you know, what is going to happen after uh, they have um, had this very public moment of confession. Well, let's look at it then. Uh, we ended with them basically saying, don't cease to cry out to Yahweh for us so that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. Now we'll hear verses 9 through 11. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to Yahweh. And Samuel cried out to Yahweh for Israel, and Yahweh answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But Yahweh thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. All right, so stopping just for a moment there. Yeah. You know, one of the things that stands out to me then is, okay, he offers a burnt offering, pardon me, an appropriate one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Samuel cries out to them. And then certainly it's not just thunder (laughs) that confuses the Philistines. Right. Uh, When they hear that thunder, uh, I guess, what is it that they're really hearing or or what should we understand they're hearing? Uh, That's a good question. I... um... From the text itself, it's really hard to say with uh, you know any kind of definitive sense, but it's thunder more than just kind of a, a natural thunder and lightning. I would I would say um, it's really the judgment of God on the Philistines themselves, which then perhaps explains uh, the confusion that comes and the defeat that um, is expressed. Because it's interesting when you, you look at the sequence of these verses. Um, and the, uh, you know, who gets the credit, if you want to put it that way, for the victory here, in that it's in verse 10, uh, where we hear the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, threw them into the confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. So even before Israel gets up and they go and they uh, pursue the Philistines and strike them down, as far as Beth Carr, we're told that, you know, God has already worked this victory for them. And you know, again, in terms of, you know, how we we understand this, um, not just for the Israelites, but in our lives as well, when victories occur like this, uh, it's God who gets the credit, not us. And so uh, it's not so much on the Israelites, and obviously their uh, prowess in warfare here, but it's on the judgment of God and his miraculous salvation of the Israelites here in this moment when they feared that, you know, they were going to be overcome by the Philistines. 
And I'm just thinking out loud, but sure. I know that the Philistines' primary god was Dagon, and Dagon's not really associated with thunder, lightning, or anything like that. Um, he's actually typically depicted as a fish god, like a merman. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I don't know that we know a whole lot about him. But Baal, not the generic word Baal that came to basically meant any god, but Baal, the namesake Baal, uh, he was a god of war and a god of thunder and a god of victory. <laughs> I, so I just wonder if in this moment when we have both the Israelites giving up their Baals and Ashtaroths and God is is hearing their their confession, pronouncing forgiveness, and then delivering for them victory, one of the means by which he uses <laughs> to deliver their victory is described as thunderous, described as basically the so-called power of the Baals. To me, it almost like it drive, drives home what you were saying, that that the, the victory isn't something that they can take credit for, and it's not something that the Baals or Ashtaroths or even Dagon could take credit for, but this, of course, is Yahweh leading them to victory. He's the true god of storms, so to speak. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I, I, I certainly that certainly popped into my head. No, I don't think you're reading too much into it. It's it's similar to what we've seen in the previous three chapters, where um, especially when the Ark of God is brought into the Temple of Dagon, and um, you know the the statue for the for that deity falls over and breaks. Um, it's this dual uh, you know battle that I think uh, goes on. It's not just the physical you know, battle between the Israelites and the Philistines, but it's the, the spiritual, the cosmic battle between God and the demons. And I think, you know, that definitely is, is a part of this, um, especially for the Philistines that day, because as you mentioned with, uh, Baal being a God of weather, God of thunder, hearing that, uh, you know, would have been terrifying for them to see, you know, our God is not um, able to save us in this moment. And, you know, here we've got this foreign God using the power that they were attributing to their false God. Um, and it's, it's God, you know, kind of just throwing it back in their face saying, I am the God of the world, not these false gods that you've created for yourselves. Well, let's keep on going and see what happens. We're going to read verses 12 through 14. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now Yahweh has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines, and there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Well, brother, that is one one uh, heck of a thunderstorm. That is correct. Because <laughs> it it results in in I mean, just if if you recall how much the Philistines were a force to be reckoned with and a thorn in the side of Israel and. And, and of course, I mean, they're going to pop up again. Sure. But we see here that their cities are restored. And, and I love how it's in the passive. Mm-hmm. You know, we, when, we, when we're taught to tell stories or even write sermons, we're told to avoid the passive language because it's important that we know who the actor is. This is all in the passive, I think, intentionally so that we understand that this is all being done for them. Although we get a hint here <laughs> that it says Israel delivered their territory from the hands of the Philistines. Uh, yeah, the the author here, Samuel, he's making it clear that this is God's work on their behalf. Correct. Yeah, and the the other interesting thing, so this uh, these last few verses really do give you the this uh, sensation of this being a bookend to everything that begins back at chapter four, chapter four, um, and you see this with this odd uh, stone that gets uh, set up uh, as a memorial. Uh, given the name Ebenezer um, for said, you know, till now the Lord has helped us Ebenezer, which, you know, can be translated as a stone of help. Um, But if you go all the way back to chapter four, verse one, uh, so the word of the Lord came, uh, so the word of Samuel came to all Israel 
Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And so, you know, here we get this, um, you know, again, kind of a bookend feeling where in chapter four, the Israelites are at Ebenezer and we see they're unfaithless trying to treat God as a good luck charm and it backfires on them. And now here they are on the other side of uh, these years and they've repented and returned to God. And, you know, they have this stone set up called Ebenezer where they're remembering God's um, helping on their behalf. And of course, for those familiar with hymns and our hymnody, um, so <laughs> hymn 686, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, which is a, a fairly popular hymn, I'd say. Um, you know, when you're singing that along and you you get to verse two and you sing out, here I raise my Ebenezer, and, you know, maybe you wonder, maybe you don't, like, what the heck is that? Well, here it is. <laughs> this is yep. This is what we're singing about. I have to admit that I think when I hear Ebenezer, I think third that, okay, this is a word that means stone of help. And I think second about Samuel erecting it. And first I think about all the times I was confused singing that very hymn uh, written by a man named Robert Robinson in the 18th century. But mm -hmm. yeah, here I raise my Ebenezer hither by thy help. I've come, uh, you know, the, the phrase Ebenezer, the weird construction and the old language has left many a parishioner coming to me in the back of the church going, what does that mean? And in our LSB, uh, thanks be to God and those who put it together, <laughs> they actually have a little reference, if I recall correctly. They have they a do. reference there at the bottom saying, okay, this is what it means. Yeah, and that's the— But it doesn't help if, you're, if your text is on the screen like it is mine, so I still have to field those questions. Well, that's true, <laughs> yeah. For those who uh, use hymnals or have the hymnals in the pews still, uh, you can—they are those helpful hints, uh, the scriptural annotations where you can see where in Scripture— uh, the inspiration for these hymns came from. That's a, a really great connection that people can make uh, as they're worshiping. Well, and it is great too, because, you know, we have here, he's, he calls its name Ebenezer, and and then he says, till now, Yahweh has helped us. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that's a strange construction too, and I didn't dig into the Hebrew, <laughs> um, and I don't suspect that you did, or if you did, uh, I don't know how, what you came up with, but is there anything significant to the till now Yahweh has helped us? Is is this kind of indicating, you know, because you've returned to him, he's helped us and, you know, it, it, it's no promise that he'll continue to if you turn away? I'm not I sure think, if, if there's anything to be understood there. No, I think they're, they're really just kind of looking uh, just at this little moment in time saying, you know, here in this moment, Yahweh has helped us um, more than, you know, saying anything bigger about, uh, will God continue to help us in the future? You know, those questions. Um, I think it's really just kind of that, that makes focus sense on to the me, moment. Yeah. Well, you know, we have then, uh, so the Philistines were subdued and did not enter the, again, the territory of Israel. Yep. Um, I guess it's, it's modified though by, and the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Mm -hmm. Um, we do, of course, you know, we think about, you know, Samson, right? Yep. Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh gave them into the hands of the Philistines uh, for 40 years. Um, are these things taking place concurrently with Samuel? Because, I mean, isn't that—aren't they overlapping First uh, Samuel and some of the judges? Uh, perhaps a little bit, and I think really what, uh, what struck me with these verses uh, was the designation of the cities. Uh, you know, they're— that were returned from the Philistines to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And for those who are familiar, again, with the timeline of Samuel and uh, Saul and David, uh, you're going to hear about Gath again uh, very famously because of one individual who uh, hailed from that town, Goliath himself, uh, from Gath. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm not sure what uh, point you were trying to make there. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, I'm just trying to establish a timeline here. So what happens in um, what happens in uh, with uh, with Samson? This sort of that it comes to an end, but it comes to an end also right here uh, because the events of Judges do overlap with the events of First uh, Samuel, uh, and even Samson and Samuel. Um, I, as I understand, are are also contemporaries of one another. So we we have this all sort of coming to place, pull, everything sort of pulling together right here. But as you point out, 
this isn't the absolute end that we're going to hear from the Philistines because uh, the, 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 the connotation here is that they don't, again, attack while um, Samuel is the judge. Correct. Yeah, and then uh, when um, Saul takes over, there you know there's going to be skirmishes and fights that that occur between uh, Israel and the Philistines again. It's just going to continue. And then there's a peace between Israel and the Amorites, which I thought was an interesting note to throw in there, especially since their conflict with the Philistines is what is um, in question. Yeah, and I was looking at this. I I don't know how you know you took that. I. The way I took this, you know, there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites, not peace in the sense that um, there were peace treaties between them and those kind of things. Right. Peace more in the sense of uh, uh, peace and quiet, you know, the cities restored and the calm uh, between Israel uh, and these uh, outlying nations at this moment. So the Amorites, which is really kind of just a generic term for all the people who lived there before the Israelites got there. <laughs> right. Um, so it isn't like a, you know, I, I, yeah, I hear what you're saying. There's no peace treaty. It's just there wasn't much to speak of as, in terms of recording these things. Um, the chapter ends with these three verses, 15 and 16 and 17. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places, and he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to Yahweh. So certainly not the first, but Samuel might be one of the first explicitly noted circuit riders or circuit visitors too, right? He's, he's you got judging it. Israel all the day of his life, and he's going from city to city to city, sort of in a in a pattern, um, but to, to do his judging work. Yeah. And I think here, this is where we get the sense of the, the broader sense of how this word judged gets used here in the scriptures is that, um, you know, as we saw earlier in this chapter, there's the priestly sense of how this word gets used. I think the judging that he's doing as he's riding uh, from, you know, on his circuit between Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and Ramah is uh, both that priestly sense and also in that civil sense where, um He's executing justice for uh, the people in, you know, in those places where they need a judgment from, uh, from the Lord and a representative of the Lord. He's serving in that capacity. And it says there he built an altar to Yahweh um, in Ramah, mm-hmm. where his home is. Um, I wonder if this indicates that he's relocated the center of worship to Ramah, um, you know, giving further evidence about the destruction of Shiloh, or if this is just yet one of many, or maybe as he got older, he set up a place where he could serve the Lord in a in a place closer to home. I don't know. Yeah, and I in looking at this, again, that was a hard question to really answer because I was wondering that same question. Um, and I think at this point— um, when it says, you know, he built an altar there to the Lord, it's, it's more in the sense as, as he gets older, uh, he's trying to, you know, when he's not able to get out as easily, uh, setting more of a, a place that he can serve the Lord. Um, and of course, when you're looking at this with the, uh, you know, looking ahead to what is to come, the, you know, there's no sense of judgment for him in building this altar, whereas we'll see with Saul, uh, when when he goes and does this himself and kind of usurps that authority, um, there's an immediate judgment on him for building an altar and offering sacrifices and and those sorts of things. Well, we won't get to <laughs> this until Monday, but in the very next chapter, um, it begins by saying, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges of Israel. And you might be thinking, well, I thought we kind of said that Samuel was the last judge, or at the very least, the last great judge. Well, he was. Yep. Uh, after giving us their names, it says, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes. They perverted justice. So, you know, I, I think—and again, we'll talk about this on Monday, but it's just a little bit of a, I guess in, a, in an odd way, a comfort to you parents out there that, you know, it doesn't even matter sometimes how— uh, perfectly, you think that you're raising your children in the faith. Um, even Samuel, the great judge of Israel, 
couldn't keep his boy straight. <laughs> Correct. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that more. Anything else as we're here at the bottom of our show uh, that you'd like the people to know before we finish up? Uh, just that as you're closing out chapter seven and we're, you know, you're looking ahead, this was a significant victory for Israel uh, that Yahweh worked for them, but uh, and a significant repentance that they had. But as uh, we'll see in the course of history with Israel and in our own lives, uh, this uh, repentance on Israel's uh, part is short lived. So uh, you'll get into that. Uh, on the next, in the very next section uh, here where Israel requests a king. We sure will. Well, folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend James Uglum, pastor of Chapel of the Cross Lutheran Church in St. Peter's, Missouri. Brother, pastor, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great. Oh, thanks. It's great to be a part of it. I look forward to having you on again. And folks, as I said, we'll pick up with Chapter 8 on Monday and hear about Samuel's sons and an eventual call by Israel for a king. But... Tomorrow is a special episode. It's another edition of our free text, First Fridays, which, as the name implies, is when we go off topic every first Friday of the month to talk about, well, something a little different. And tomorrow, my guest will be the Reverend Sean Smith, pastor of Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mason City, Iowa. He's no stranger to radio, having been the previous host of Concord Matters right here on KFUO and frequent contributor on a variety of radio programs. So join in as we have a great discussion. But until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.